This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 53. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. In sports and in actually any type of career, a key metric when defining success is the word longevity. It's one thing to be successful for a short period of time. However, it's a completely different thing to have success for a long period of time. And while the truest form of the definition for longevity is long life, we're actually talking more about the length of someone's service. And our guest this episode is a true model of longevity, and that's Kevin Willis who played 22 years in the NBA, competing at the highest level, where he was named an All-Star in 1992 while playing for the Atlanta Hawks. And as a seven-foot power forward, Kevin played for legendary coach Judd Heathcote in college at Michigan State and was selected 11th overall in 1984, which was arguably the greatest draft class in NBA history. Now, he would eventually reach the pinnacle of the NBA, where he won an NBA championship in 2003 as a member of the San Antonio Spurs, and he would finish his career as one of only 15 players in NBA history to score over 16,000 points while recording over 11,000 rebounds. His longevity on the court has also even been replicated off the court. With the success of his clothing line, he started in 1988 with former Michigan State teammate Ralph Walker, which previously focused exclusively on designing premium denim for the XLT set, but is now the premier lifestyle brand for men that has many clients across all all of the major sports organizations. And now, episode 53 with Kevin Willis. Kevin, I greatly appreciate your time. And Mm -hmm. it's crazy for me to be sitting here across from you. It's kind of full circle going back to my high school days of harassing you as you're walking into the Omni yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. and long time ago. Yes, asking for your autograph and for your shoes and, like I said, almost stalking you. But the one thing, you haven't aged a bit. Well, try not to anyway. <laughs> Just try to keep my mental so, state together. So how do you keep yourself in shape? I mean, you played 22 years mm-hmm. in the NBA. How do you – I mean, you look like you could play right it's, now. It's, it's attributed to the commitment. Um to self-commitment to the game of basketball that I love and um, wanting to, as we progress in life, as we get older, we always want to, you know, look back and say, you know what, we, we've enjoyed those days in our 20s, our days in our 30s, even in, up until our 40s. And um, I, I keep that, I'm very mindful of that. And so when I go out and train, I just train because mentally it, it makes me feel good. Physically, it makes me feel good. It makes me... Um, feel like I'm in my in my 30s but um, it's just a great feeling and how did you do that 
for throughout your career though for 22 years what was kind of your game plan to stay in shape and you know I'm 46 and I can't imagine playing in the NBA you did that until you're like 45 so yeah. I mean that's not an easy task it's not an easy, ta- easy task but it, it, it committed I had the commitment all the way, all the way back to high school just learning how to uh, become a professional learn how to utilize and move around the weight room and, and I had good friends of mine that were either uh, Mr. Olympia, they were ex-NFL players or um, seniors in college that would take me into the uh, weight room and show me how to build a routine and stick to it and how to uh, do certain amount of reps or how to increase my, my, my weight to uh, get more power, things like that. And so once I learned how all that was done, I just started you know, doing it on my own. And once I started on my own, it was like, you know what? I got this and um, it's routine. And once I started, I never looked back. I just, I've been doing it ever since I was uh, 18 years old. Going back to your early childhood and mm-hmm. we're here at your Willis and Walker studio clothing line. Mm-hmm. You know, I know fashion has obviously been yes. a big part of your life yes. and sports as well. So was there an intersection early on in your childhood where you fell in love with both fashion and sports at the same time. So how did that start? Well, it, it started in high school where several of my teammates and friends in high school, we would sort of interchange, you know, I would wear the shoes one day, they would wear them, you know, two days later, or we'd interchange shirts or pants, things like that, because there wasn't a lot of stuff out there for me to wear. So to look the part, we had to kind of switch and play that little role. And um, after doing that for two years, I started having this big growth spurt. So I couldn't participate in that anymore. So it was like it became like a, a serious problem. So we're, my mom would have to try to piece things together and make things longer, jeans longer, add on to the hems and, and things like that. And when and, you say growth spurt, what type of growth spurt um, are you talking about? Uh, five inches in one summer. Good grief. Yeah, so it went from six four and a half to basically six nine. Six and nine how nine. old were you at that I point? was 16. Okay. Yeah, so I, I hit this tremendous growth spurt. And after doing that, it was like, you know what, I can't, I can't do this swapping clothing anymore. And, um, but I still wanted to be cool and look, look kind of, you know, fly in high school. And, of course. And, and become Mr. You know, GQ, whatever it's going to be when the, the student body, I guess the students start picking who's the most popular, things like that. And, um, it didn't happen, but, um, um, but I still had inside me that I wanted to look good. I'm almost seven foot tall and I wanted to dress good. So I just stuck with it mentally. Uh, financially, I couldn't uh, support that habit. But, you know, I could always keep it in, my, in, the, in, the, in the back of my mind that if one day, if I'm fortunate enough to come uh, into money and, and financially be able to do some certain things, I would do it. And um, all of a sudden, bam, here I am. So early on in your childhood, you didn't really start playing basketball until later in high school. 16. 16. 16. Okay. So why did you wait that long and were you involved in other sports growing up as your kind of your first memories of sports? Well, um, I always, I always could run. I was an avid runner. I could run distance like it was nobody's business and not even blink at it. I could run 10, 12 miles and whatever. It was just because I was bored. And um, that sort of became part of my routine every day was just to run. And um and my ninth grade year, it probably even goes back all the way up to my ninth grade because that's when guys used to get jumped and I had to run from a group of guys. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, that, I'm, I'm quite sure that was part of it. 
So it was just survival. Survival, yeah. uh, big time. And um, and this is growing up in Detroit. In Detroit, in okay. my ninth grade year in high school, and um, that was that was enjoyable because they could they could never catch me, so that was cool. Um, yeah. But as I got older, all that stopped, and then I just started running just because I enjoyed it. And um, basketball came along when I went from I transferred high schools, and I never uh, forget that. Coach um, William Carter from my high school, Pershing, when I transferred, when my family moved to the other side of town, I went. I was enrolled to into Pershing High School, and the coach came up to me and asked him, would uh, play ball? And I said, I, no, I don't play basketball. I just want to run. And he said, well, that's good, too. And he says, will you um, come to my seventh period gym class? And I said, yeah, I come in. And he said, I want you to watch the team play and just, you know, just – let me know if you find this interesting. Next day I know I was in there every day watching guys play. And then I told him, I said, he basically convinced me to play. And I said, I would. And um, next two two years, I was on the varsity starting and um, really couldn't play. But he believed that I could get better. And he rolled the dice with me and uh, he stood behind me. And uh, next thing you know, I go from a averaging, I think, uh, six four and a half, six points my junior year to average about 24 my senior year. So what was the tipping point that all of a sudden you just had this explosion from your junior year to your senior year? Uh, just just knowing and believing that someone believed in me and the work I put in playing in the summer, um, playing on the weekends and playing against older guys and they just, they just, they either beat it in me or I was just determined to get better. So it was a combination of both. And once that happened, and I started to see the, the improvement, I could start to see things that changed. I started seeing that the, the leaping ability was amazing. And it was like, wow, I can do this. And once I started it, that was it. So you started believing in yourself. I started believing that I could play the game of basketball. And if I put in all the work, I could become a pretty good basketball player. And was there motivation to prove those people right that had believed in you, or was it just more of an inner drive was, that you wanted to? It was an inner drive. It was I didn't want to let those people who believed in me down. And then the the doubters from just people that I've known in the neighborhood or whatever would never think I could do this. So I said, uh, that's what you think. I think differently. So um, it was a blessing because I um, I did this and I really put everything into it and then three or four years later it's like one of the top players in Michigan you know I mean you got a ton of amazing players a lot of talent but there. Um, you know when you look at it now and you do the research and it's the top 100 high school players you know I'm in that top I guess 40 or somewhere up in there but um, and obviously you blossomed late. Yeah, I blossomed late and I was labeled as a project coming out of college. But even that was, all that stuff is in, in, in a normal person's mind. I think they would think that's, you know, bad or it's, it's people are being critical. And in a sense, it's more constructive criticism for me. And I looked at it as, you know what, this is, um, this is fuel. Every time someone says something negative, it was going to be my fuel. I just kept that inside of me. So it was, it burns and it burns and it burns. And I just get better until I get better and better and better. And they look back and they're like, wow, this, this, I can't believe what this guy is doing. And just having faith in God saying that, you know what, this is, I bless you to, have, to be seven foot. 
and you're taking this gift and you're taking this tool and you're using it, utilizing it uh, to its fullest ability. And that's what I, I ran with that stuff. And how early ha- did you come to your faith or you know connection oh, with man, Christ? Always, always. Okay. My mom always instilled that in us, my brother and sister, always. So yeah. from an early age, it just early was normal for your yeah, household. Yeah, we, we would watch, you know, watch our parents, watch yeah. my mom pray, and watch her do all these things. So that was in us, period. Yeah. And were you falling in love with basketball once you started playing it? Did you see that? Every, every time I go out to play, I would see something different happen in, the, in every game. It was something different. Even if it was a, a negative, it was something that, you know what, I need to not do that. I need to improve on that. Um, if it's a positive, I need to make that part of my repertoire. I need to make that. I need to do that more often. And I just sort of look at my game and see where I need to work out and, and, and try to improve in that area. When did it hit you that I believe that now I can utilize my basketball skills and talent and actually go to college and get a college education? When did that? Become that, that part of your mindset. My senior year, when I still didn't get all the letters, and were you frustrated by I that? Was never, I was never frustrated. I just watched my friends get all the letters. Yeah. And, and I don't get me wrong, I did get some letters, but it wasn't your top tiers. You know, if it's University of Cincinnati, or if it's it's um, or Roberts, or it's Old Dominion, those are the type of which are those are good schools. Don't get me wrong. Of course, but. I was I was always led to believe you had to go to a Big Ten school, you had to go to ACC school, you had to go to UCLA, you had to go to schools like that, the ones that has the, the highest rankings, and I believed that for a while. And um, but that wasn't the case for me. My first year out of high school, I had to go to junior college. So when I went to junior college, that sort of was a blessing in disguise too, because it helped me to improve my game for the next level. And um, when I went to junior college, I had a, a, a really, really good year then. So I, it helped me mature a little bit more, and it also helped my game mature. So when I went to Michigan State, it was like almost starting all over. I'm in the Big Ten. I'm in the top school in the country. And now I have to start all over again as far as basketball because the level of competition is much greater. It's much more the physicality is much more greater than, say, junior college. And so I had to start all over again. I had to take my, you know, get back in the back of the line and, and, and wait my turn and, <laughs> yeah. and earn my spot, or earn the starting position again. And once I did that, it just started going down. I got injured. I messed my knee up, set me back a little bit. But then I came back out because I always had that desire and that burner, burning desire to, to get better. And I wasn't going to let anything sort of hinder that. And my faith just kept growing. Well, even more so. And were you a Michigan State fan growing up? Were there other schools that you gravitated well, originally, towards more? Originally, I wanted to go to U of M. In doing so, I was, uh, I never, I'll never forget when I was at Michigan, I mean, I was at Jackson Community College, and Coach uh, Judd Heathcote and Coach Bill Frieder came to watch me play. And in doing so, they were, you know, sort of coming while they came to the game and watched, uh, watched me play. And... Um, after the game, I didn't actually, I didn't, I didn't talk to them. They talked to my coach and Bill Frieder. And, that, and now at that time, I wanted to go to Michigan. And so Bill Frieder told um, um, my coach, Alan Van Winkle at that time, that he thought I wasn't ready for Big Ten basketball. I wasn't ready for it at that level. And Judd said, 
I'll love to have him on my team. Um, he's raw, he's athletic. He just has to, you know, keep working on certain parts of aspects of his game. But I love to have him. And so when he came back the next day after practice and called me in his office and told me this, I said, okay. And um, I gave it about a week, some thought, pondered it a little bit. I said, I'm going to Michigan State. So I said, now it's time for me to show Bill Frieder if I'm ready for Big Ten basketball. So how was that the first time you play against Michigan? Oh, it was real good for me. I mean, <laughs> it was real good. So they knew it. They knew it for sure. And um, so I take it, it was, that was extra motivation. A lot of motivation, a lot of motivation. But it, it, again, it goes back to that fuel. It was just, he was just fueling me to get, get even better, the determination, the willpower to be successful. And I, and I did that. Speaking of Judd Heathcote, though. He believes in you, gives you a shot, uh, sees the raw potential. Obviously, he's a legendary coach in college basketball. Yes. And rest his soul, mm-hmm. passing away last yes. year. So what did you learn from being with Judd Heathcote? Well, the, the, the number one thing I learned from him is he prepared me for, for life. Um, he prepared me to be what we, we used to call a pro's pro. Um, basketball is one phase of life, but... Um, being a, a professional on and off the court, um, being smart in decision-making, things like that, maturing, um, kind of understand how finances work. If you if you ever reach that level, he used to teach me, don't go out and just splurge and buying things. And he just taught me things like that. And it stuck with me uh, all my life. And then basketball, he was, I think he was, he was, I was the hardest person he was on than anybody on the team. And I was his starting center. I was everything, but... Um, yeah, you were a captain. Yeah, I was captain, all of that. And he was hardest on me. And at that time, I used to ask, why is he so hard on me? And it took a little time for me to understand that he's teaching me as I go. He's teaching me for that next level. He's preparing me for that next level. And... Um, and that's part of the reason why I played 22 years. Based on the foundation that he helped the foundation instilled as far as the maturity, um, the disciplines, the work ethic, um, knowing how to deal with people when they're um, just on you, like hovering and just Mm -hmm. constantly on you. So these things he was teaching me as I went through my three years at Michigan State. And then now what about your memories of this young assistant, uh, Tom Izzo, that shows up your senior year? Uh, my senior year when Tom came, he was, oh man, he, was, he wasn't really too Im- intimidated by Judd. Because Judd, would, I, I've had coaches come in and Judd would get on them so hard, they actually quit and went back to their high school. And, or some other school. And so Judd was demanding. Oh yeah, very demanding. And and Tom Tom just came in with a different mindset. And even though you could see that, you know, obviously Judd's calling all the shots, but Tom stood his ground, and they just ended up working out to be like it was it was like harmony, man. They um and that's why Tom's been in almost twenty plus years, almost thirty years, and because um, he learned a lot from Judd. And, um, and he's doing just a tremendous job. Yeah, and you hear him talk 
quite oh, yeah. extensively yeah. about yeah. Yeah. what Judd Heathcote had meant to him as well. So, I, mm-hmm. and now you're telling your story. Yes. It just emanates just what Judd had been he able meant, to do he, for a lot of people. A lot of people. He's changed a lot of lives. He's he's directed some people in some great and positive ways. And um, I mean, he's he's just been a great mentor yeah. as well as a great coach. Yeah. Now, was there a point in your junior or senior year that people started talking about NBA with you and that that became a not, focal point for you? Not until my senior year. Even though in the back of my mind, someone had to be thinking about it. The other seven-foot guy, I led the Big Ten in uh, rebounding, I think my senior year, field goal percentage, things like that. And I could run, outrun anybody in the country. Um, and I was a, a, a force to be reckoned with just from the physicality. But um, it wasn't until my, my senior year, and then it casted more even more doubt is this legitimate is this a is this a fluke and I'm hearing all these things and I'm I'm in the, I'm in the <laughs> middle I'm, I'm first I'm in the in the low of the first round top of the second round that's when I had all the rounds and I'm like hmm and I'm like thinking I'm like wow okay and so we go to Hawaii we get invited to go to Hawaii in the Hawaiian Classic and all the top seniors are invited to this thing and coach Heathcote ended up being the head coach of that team and he he came pulled me in his office and he said hey you were invited to hawaii to play in the hawaiian classic and i said great and he kind of kind of explained to me what it was and i said cool but then he comes back and said and said he gets a call and they say they're not sure if they want to invite me now and so (laughs) Coach Heathcote tells them, if you don't invite him, I'm not coaching this team. <laughs> so he, we go off to Hawaii. They invite me. And so he doesn't say anything to me on, in, on the plane. He, you know, we're just riding for 10 and 11 hours. He, my, him, his wife, myself, and probably some other, obviously other people on the plane that we knew. But when we get to the hotel, he tells me, he says, I want you to do two things for me. I said, what? He says, I want you to sleep and I want you to kick their asses. I said, all right. Some simple direction, right? Simple direction. And so we start the first game and I literally just destroy the whole camp. <laughs> I take over the entire Camp. So all these big names are, you know, before me and all that, which is cool. I don't mind that because it's not my ego. It's just me wanting to get better. And so, but before the tournament ends, I was just, we lost our, we won the first one, lost the second game, won the third game. If we'd have won the second, all three games, I would have been the MVP of the whole entire tournament. And that's how much it meant to me to go there. And when Judd did what he did, it was like, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a, I'm a perform on a, on a level that people are going to take notice. So when I left Hawaii, I, I left Hawaii and I flew to California. And I stayed in California for a few days. And um, Judd came to me and said, you know what, you did pretty good, uh, but you're not done yet. I said, okay. And so I go to California. I get back to, I get back to East Lansing. I get back to school. 
and um, I felt pretty good. I said, okay, I had a good, I think I had a good showing in Hawaii. And then all of a sudden I get a call and they say that there is another tournament, but this one's in, it's the, the, the NBA has a um, combine in Chicago, the NBA the big camp in Chicago. And they said, well, Kev, they want you to come. And I said, well, I just did Hawaii. They want you to come to Chicago because they think Hawaii is a fluke. <laughs> this is no joke. They, <laughs> oh think, they think what I did in Chicago is like, this was like a dream. They, I didn't really do all this. And so I said, um, I said, okay. Oh, I really got to go? He said, yeah, you got to go, man, because you want to be in the top of the draft. And in Chicago, all of the, the NBA scouts are in Hawaii, but all the scouts and whoever, they're thinking, no, this is, he just lucked up. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to Chicago. So now I, I'm in my dorm room, I'm sitting there I'm like, oh man, I gotta go to Chicago. <laughs> and it's springtime almost, like it's like in this almost summer and I'm like, so now I start training, even though I'm in tip top shape, but I'm gonna start training again and I'm gonna be in tip, tip top shape. And I go to Chicago, Fred Carter is a coach. He's a, he's a, he's an NBA coach and he's really hard. He's really tough, like Judd, but even if more so. And I said, so when we got practice, he's screaming and yelling, but Fred Carter ended up falling in love with myself or my dear friend, Jerome Kersey. And we started and we started practice and we're doing really good in practice and we're just really going off. And now the game starts. And they got all these guys, some of the same guys that were in Hawaii are there. And I said to myself, I said, well, I'm looking at, I don't know who all these NBA scouts are, but the gym is just packed and all these, I know it's NBA scouts and they're all over the place, agents all over the place. And I said, okay, we start the games, we playing the first game, all the people who's before me, names and all this, again, destroy all of them. This, is this dominate them and intimidating these guys. And I'm rebounding with this fury in me that when I'm getting rebounds, mm -hmm. if you come by me, you like get your, 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 your neck snapped. <laughs> and I'm grabbing rebounds and I'm scoring and I'm running and I'm doing all these wonderful things. And so the, that, that game, the next game, the next game, and all these are workouts, but they were playing games too. And they say, well, if you do, if you have a great showing at this, at this, this combine, you can, um, you possibly can be invited to the NBA draft where the NBA pays for you to go, you and whoever else, they pay for you to, to actually be there that night. Be at the draft. So, but going in, I had, that was for, I didn't even know, know anything about that. And then they told me that. And so I just kept doing what I was doing. So when it was all over with, I jumped by the name of Marty Blake. I don't know if you ever know oh, Marty Blake. No, yes. He says, Kevin Willis, I'm Marty Blake. I said, hey, how you doing, Mr. Blake? He said, you had a sensational camp. He said, I'd like to invite you and your family to the NBA draft. So I'm like a stack. I can imagine. And so they say they only invite to the top 10 only. So I figured now I'm at the top of the second round three, three weeks ago. Now I'm in the top 10 of the whole entire draft. So I'm like, yeah. wow. And especially coming from Marty Blake. Marty, I mean, he was yeah. the he was he was, he the, was scout. the NBA super scout. Yeah, he Whatever was. he said, it that was, was golden. Exactly. It, it surely was. And so when he invited me, we, he got my information. 
He calls me up. I got everything's paid for. He, they flew everybody that I can imagine my family there. <laughs> I must have my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and my uncle. Yeah, so what'd your mom and dad think when you told oh, them? They were, just, they were just, my mom was just, she was just so happy for me. She didn't know about the NBA stuff. She didn't okay. know basketball, but not like she did now. But, um, but she was happy for me, and my dad was happy for me. And my brother and sister was happy, and everybody was cool. But I stayed in my mind. It was like, still got a lot of work step. to do, right? Another, yep, another step. Mm-hmm. And um, got to the draft and ended up being the 11th pick of the draft. And you're part of the arguably the, the best, draft ever. best draft class ever in NBA history. Yeah. You know, obviously the... The names Michael Jordan, Hakeem, uh, Charles Barkley, Barkley, Stockton. All these guys. But you got also Alvin Robertson, Robertson. Terrence Stansberry, Otis Thorpe. Thorpe. I mean, the list goes on guys, and on. Man. We had um, Jerome Kersey was in that. Yes. One. Jay Humphreys was in that. I mean, we had some great, great players in that draft. Sam Bowie. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a great draft. And um, from that point, then when I got drafted 11 to Atlanta, then it again, it started all over again. Now I'm a, I'm a rookie, and I got to prove myself again. And from there, it's been yeah. 22 years. Past. And I remember watching you earlier in your career. Mm-hmm. I witnessed firsthand what you described that fury. Yes. I mean, you played like you were angry all the time. Mm-hmm. And is that again just the inner drive of trying to prove people wrong that you belong in the NBA and? It, Obviously, there's been people that have doubted yeah. you throughout your career. So is that why you were well, I that with, intensity? Well, I, I played with this, this intensity because it was taught to me through playing Big Ten basketball, for one. And for two, it was like I wanted to become one of the – I used to hear the thing about being an enforcer for your team. So I wanted to be that guy. And everybody looked to me to be that guy. You were that guy. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I took that role – and so all the power forwards in my era, especially in the 80s and the 90s, they were really true power forwards. So every night that we battle, it's like mm-hmm. you come with your hard hat on. And it's like two rams banging every night. And I knew who I could really eventually penetrate and get, and get through them um, because they lacked whatever ability that, you know, they just didn't have the skill to play down low or they didn't have the skill to run up and down the court or they were in the athleticism wasn't there. Like, and, and I had to capitalize off of that weakness. Of course. And, um, I'm quite sure they did the same thing, trying to find out the weakness in me. And that's how we did it. And it was um, very, very competitive. Yeah. But I never knew I would play 22 years. Of course. So, yeah, your mindset was just, I just want to have a good NBA career. Did you have any other specific goals that you had in mind as far as, obviously we know everybody wants to win an NBA mm-hmm. championship. Right which you were able to do eventually, mm-hmm. but early on, what were some of your specific goals when you first got in the league? The first thing was just to establish myself as one of the top players at my position um, and not let politics play a role in that. So in order to do that, it was about rebounding the basketball. It was about being able to score down low, um, defend, and when you needed a basket, being able to be that person that could get you one if you needed it or rebound when you needed it at a key time. So those are some of the focuses. But it wasn't until I think it was 1989, 90, 
I think the, the year that Willis Reed was there. Okay, so when Willis Reed was there, I still had this, this aggression in this, in this mindset, but it wasn't always tamed. It wasn't tamed all the time. Certain things that could, could trigger me. And then I remember one game that we were playing um, at the Omni and I picked up two quick fouls. And now I'm like, I'm at my mind is me and the ref, me and the ref, me and the ref. I, I don't want to do anything to get thrown out of the game, but it's me and the ref. You're focusing on him now. And I can't focus on the game. I can't focus on anything but the referee. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm like on the bench, man. I'm like in this rage, right? And um, I'm not going to attack nobody, but in my mind, it's like, why are you picking on me, man? Or what, what is this? And so all of a sudden, Willis Reed gets off the bench. And I'm talking smack to my teammates like, man, there's some, uh, <laughs> and he hears me, right? And so he, um, he gets off the bench and he walks past me and he stands at the end of the bench and he stands there for a minute. And then he comes and stands in front of me and he says something like, uh, hey, have you um, heard of whatever had nothing to do with basketball? I mean, nothing to do with basketball. Totally. To something totally random. It was so random, man. It's like night and day. And he made me laugh so hard, man. <laughs> and I thought about it. And he said, well, go out there and play, man. Relax and go out there and play. So he I just diffused your anger, diffused didn't he? Diffused it and turned the whole page to something totally different. I went out there, man, had an amazing game. And then afterwards at the game, he came to me again. He said, you know what you got? He said, you got, you're one of the most physical players in this league. He said, I said yeah. He says, but I want you to do me a favor. He said, 80 or 90% of the physical, that I, I think 80 or 90% of this is all physical. He says, I want you to switch it. 10% is physical, 90% is mental. He said, switch wow. that for me. I switched it. All-star game, everything started going like this. Numbers just went off the charts. So that's a breakthrough moment for you. Yeah, and uh, and another guy responsible for that is a is one of my competitors. Um, that was one of the most dominant centers I ever played against was Akeem Olajuwon, and you know, prior to even pr I think this might have been right before Willis said that to me. I was on the court, you know, I used to go out and warm up before the game, right? By myself, I'm on the court, you gotta be at the gym at 5.30. I'm, at the, I'm on the floor by 4.45 warming up because it's, they still fixing the, the chairs. And I'm yeah, still out there you're there up. early. You gotta try and get my, my, my mindset and get ready for the game that way. And by the time I start finishing warming up, the other teams there, and Akeem comes out. I'll take it back. We were we actually we were in Houston, and I was warming up like that. And so Akeem comes out, and he goes to the end into their basket, and he's warming up doing what he's doing. I'm down here doing my thing, and he started doing some sprints, dribbling, this and that. And I'm 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 looking at him like we about to go to war. I'm thinking like <laughs> you're not going you're not going to do all this stuff tonight. So I got my mind. I'm, I got the face on. We got the game face on. Yes. And he's at the half court when I finish I'm walking off the court and he sp he speaks and I say what's up dream and he's and I'm seeing it like I'm mad 
And he says, uh, you want to set the tone. Yeah, I'm setting the tone. I'm standing there right now. And he says, why do you in that in that, in that <laughs> accent? He says, yes. why do you um, always look so bad? And, and I'm like, this is me, man, getting for the game. He says, you know, this enjoy this, man. Enjoy it. Smile. It's no. And then I'm and I, I don't want to see I don't want him to see me crack. You know, and like, and this changed my whole persona. So I walk off and I go in the back of the, through the tunnel, go back in the locker room, and I, st- and I kind of pause for a minute. And I was like, what did he say that for? And I said, let me try it. And I no more yeah. took the face off and just enjoying it, doing my comeback and layup line, doing my thing, just relaxing. And everything started changing. The game, because it just flowed. It wasn't this intensity. It's like when you're intense, you, it's like doing anything in life. If you're tensed up, you can't, you can't, you're not relaxed. You can't really focus. You can't because you're too tense. It actually becomes harder. It becomes much harder. And so I did that. I applied that and I, and I, and I learned over the, the course of the season to kind of pull back from being so this aggression. Then when Willis Reed told me what he told me, it really turned a corner for me. And then the rest of the next 15 years, yeah. it was like... Now, do you think you would have been able to have a 22-year career if you didn't yeah. change your mindset? Yes, I would have. Yeah, I think so. You still... Mm-hmm. So even if you would have played angry, you would have played angry for 22 years. Yeah. But it's, that's, that goes back to the maturity. And knowing that... Getting a, a real perspective on this. It's just... Akeem said, it's just a game. He was really deep. It's just a game. It's nothing <laughs> right. more than it's just a game. deep, yeah. And, and I thought about those things, and it's like, Kev, it is. It's just a game. It has no – it's when you're talking about family, loved ones, real-life situations, other people's crisis, and this and that, this is just a game. And that stuff stuck with me, man. And I love Dream of Death. I mean, Willis Reed the same way. Oh, I can imagine. Because they, they impacted me this way. And uh, two of the greatest players ever. And uh, so I took that with me over the next 15, 16 seasons – and it's been like unbelievable, man. It's an unbelievable ride. Yeah, it was un- yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. your your ride was different yeah. after that All Star NBA champion. Yes, then nineteen years of winning a uh, NBA championship, and all of it was you know I give those guys a lot of credit for that because they taught me a, a tremendous a lot mentally, and because uh, physically I could I could do it, you know I, I know I could do it because I was. I was the strongest, the strongest in the league, and um, I knew it. But I just had to switch the switch the the direction of it, of course, and say ten percent of this is, is phys- the physical physicality. Yeah, that's amazing. So, who else in the league gave you problems? Obviously, I know Akeem Olajuwon is the by greatest far, center. Yeah, far. so obviously you, that was a tough battle. But who else? Not did the, you? Other guys didn't give me as many problems. It wasn't guys I say, wow, I gotta go against this guy. You know? Yeah, so that wasn't. But Dream was like, you gotta get ready for this dude, man. <laughs> Shaq possessed a lot of challenge in a sense because he was so massive. He was just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 242, Shaq's 315. But even, even with that, you can't outrun me. Um, you can't shoot from outside. But if you get in that, Eight foot under the basket, you're 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 going to going to destroy you. 
And I used to try just to outweigh, outrun him and try to fatigue him as much as I could. But he was, you couldn't stop him. There's not no such thing as stopping Shaq. You cannot stop him. Just because he's so big. Yeah, only one can stop Shaq is Shaq. If Shaq wanted to really go out, if he, and I always said this to, to people, if Shaq had that m- mindset that I had early on, that, that fury, the they, anger. They, they wouldn't let him play because he would hurt, he would, he would destroy everybody. He was more mild and he knew if all he had to do was just play, he would average 30 and, and 15 like it was nothing. So, but he had, if he had this real anger and it took a lot for it to really get him pissed off, especially if he didn't like you, he would just destroy you. But we had a mutual respect, we liked each other, but we would compete and it's days when once he gets it down low, you better get out the way and you you don't get your head broke. So it was like, <laughs> but, but Akeem had so many moves. You would think you can do this. He would counter this. If you stop that, he's going to counter this. The turn around, the dream shake, the, to the middle, the drop step, the spin move. He had so many things that his arsenal was just unbelievable. The shackle would bag down and turn around and just boom, that was it. Just by force, just he was getting to the goal. force, yeah. yeah. So those two guys were probably the hardest to guard of everybody. Barkley was a beast to guard because he was 6'6", but he could do everything, outside, inside, but he was power forward too. Mm -hmm. So I had to play him a lot as well. So you had some challenges, but Keem was by far. Because I knew Charles could be on on the three-point line, but Keem was going to be occupying this space here all the time. So it was constantly, constantly on both ends. Defensively, he was a tear. Offensively, he was a tear. Charles could defend when he wanted to, but Dream was constantly, all the time. And at that time of the NBA, I mean, it was truly physical post-play. Yes. And so it was not an easy night (laughs) when you were facing some of these guys just because of the physicality. Mm -hmm. What about the mindset of your starter, you know, with the Hawks, um, and then as your career evolves mm-hmm. you now you're more in a role player right. type of position coming right. off the bench so was that difficult for you to accept and realize i can still contribute it's just not in the capacity that i'm used to man i took that like it was though if i was a starter that didn't phase me not one okay. bit i knew when i when i was in um, when i went to houston and I was with Charles, playing with Charles, playing with uh, Dream, playing with Clyde Drexler, and I was come off the bench. I said, I'm playing against three, playing with three Hall of Famers, man. I ain't, that's this is an honor, man. I think this is an honor, man. I don't care about that. My pride is not going to, and I'm in, I'm in my four, 13th or 14th year, so I did what I had to do already. And then when I came in as the reserve, I still averaged 16 and, nine rebounds and, and still doing my thing. But I used to like watching them guys do their thing, then go right in and, and keep it moving and keeping the team, the guys that went in with me, keep it going, keep this thing, give the guys a break, bam. And then all of a sudden I'm starting for Houston. Charles gets hurt or Dream get hurt. Coach puts me in the starting lineup and I'm starting for 15, 20 games, after about 20 something a game and it's like, and then when Charles comes back, it's like, Kev, thanks, man, did a tremendous job. <laughs> And the day Charles comes back, the day he starts, I say, all right, coach, no problem. Let's keep it moving. That's you, it. It's you knew no, your role, right? Yeah. So it was, it, it, I mean, I embraced it. It was no, not even a, a, even a thought 
why should I not be starting? I know I can. I knew if I had to start, I could still get the job done. If I if I come off the bench, it doesn't make a difference. I'm still get the job, the job done. And now you never got to play in the NCAA tournament, March never. Madness. No, none of that. But you did get to finally get to NBA Finals with San Antonio Spurs in 2003. Right. Win the title. So was it everything that you dreamed it would be of actually? Putting on that ring of NBA champion. Yeah, that was that was a blessing to be able to go and play with San Antonio, three or four more Hall of Famers, um, one already, and so we got Tim, we got Tony, and got Mono Ginobili coming up. But that was such an honor to play there too in a reserve role. I know if I go there, I was going to deliver whatever Pop wanted me to deliver. Whether and he came to me and said, "Hey." Um, it's going to be days, nights when you play 20, 30 minutes. And it's going to be nights when you play no minutes. Let's go, Pop. Uh, whatever you need. <laughs> and it's always, and it goes back to Judd. It goes back to college, the stuff that he put in me. And so I just apply it. Being, I'm able to accept it and deal with it because, again, it's just a game, man. It's just, it's just a game. I love it with everything in me, but... It's it. To the end of the night, it's just a game. That's all it is. Yeah, it wasn't all-consuming of your life. No, no, it, it doesn't. It, it's it's part of my life, but it's not what defines me. Yeah, it's not that. And and now part of your life is obviously Willis and Walker and the fashion aspect of what you've mm-hmm. been able to do. But you actually started it while you were playing. Yeah. In 1988. So mm-hmm. how difficult was that? Dedicating time, obviously, on the court, but then also off the court, trying to start a business and I remember Kevin when you showed up to the games you were one of the best dressed yeah. guys early yeah. on so obviously fashion has been important but how difficult was that trying to balance what you wanted to do from an entrepreneurial standpoint in your playing career it, it wasn't it wasn't really a, a, a tough balancing act for me because you know I was I was very passionate about what I did and very anxious to learn it and see guys wear some of the stuff that we were producing at that time. And um, so it was almost like a something fun to do. And then after the first year, two years, I said, you know what? I can, I can really do something with this. And once I started, I never, I never looked back. So in the off season, what I would do is, um, well, during the season, we go to California we would go to practice, or some days when we fly in, we wouldn't have to have practice. I see, put my stuff in the room and get in the cab and go search out factories in LA. And I'll be in somewhere in Compton or down, I'll be somewhere, I don't even know where I'm at, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm just looking on this, on this piece of paper I wrote, man, with this address on it, hey, man. And this is pre internet. Yeah, no pre- internet, man. This is just Google Maps, cab, none of that. Take to this address, and hopefully I end up in the right place, you know, but, um, <laughs> So I did that for uh, years, and I uh, started to establish a relationship with these factories, or getting some things made. I don't know if they were overcharging me, but I was getting it done. And um, before you knew it, um, one summer I went to the NBA commissioner and said, hey, I want to do some internships because I want to, I'm passionate, I love it, but I got to learn it. I got to really learn it. So the only way I'm going to learn it, because college days are over, it's about on hands experience now. So I got to learn it from other people who's in the industry. And so I did internships for five summers straight. Yeah, I want you to share a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that because a lot of people would think that 
Well, of course he can have a successful business because he had a successful MBA career, but mm-hmm. not many people know the grind that you did during mm-hmm. those summers with the internship. So share a little bit more. The MBA always offered its players opportunities to go further education, go get your degrees, any field you want to get into. I don't care what it was. Um, if, it, if, if, it, if it was nothing bad, they're going to support you. They're going to make sure it gets done. They're going to put you in place with the right companies, organizations, tech, fashion, music, whatever it is, they're going to do it. And uh, mine was, you know, I went to David Stern and said, hey, I want to go to, um, I want to really pursue this fashion and I need to get into New York, come to New York and get in plugged into different organization companies from Calvin Klein to Perry Ellis, Doniger Group, which is the largest forecasting company in the world, the second one I believe it is, and so on and so forth. So I went and next thing you know, I go and they hand me um, on a itinerary, and I go from nine to five, and it was suited up every day. I don't care how hot it is in June, every day. <laughs> and I did that for like two weeks, and I did it for three weeks. And I'm in New York doing this thing every summer, and I had to learn it. I really had to learn it because I, I, I didn't know all the terminology. I didn't know what grading and patterns and stuff was. I didn't hear about it, but I couldn't get in front and say, okay, if he's talking to me about this pattern, how this grade rule is, and I didn't know all that stuff. So I wanted to learn all that stuff. I wanted to know what, what all this shipping and distrib- uh, distribution, shipping and receiving, and, and I want to know what that stuff was. Yeah, real world knowledge. Real, real world knowledge. I want to know what the fabrics were. I want to know how do you buy this? How do you get it from here to here? How do you um, not have to buy so much? Or how can you get minimums? Or how can you, I want to learn all this stuff. And over those five uh, years, I started to learn it. And then once I got a good grasp on it, now I took it upon myself to even go further with it and build relationships, relationships, sit in on meetings and, and listen. So I did all this stuff for years. The next thing you know, now, now I do it in my sleep. And it's just second nature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And obviously just the relationships that you've built and connections, this mm-hmm. thing has been able to grow through kind of word of mouth. Yes. And the other thing that I want to make sure that I understand from your perspective is you also give back. Mm-hmm. And that's with the Atlanta Children's Foundation. Yes. So why is that so important to you and what that looks like, giving back? Well, because it, it's real simple for me. Someone gave me an opportunity. Someone gave me a chance when I was 10 years old. And I took that chance and I ran with it. And that opportunity, I ran with it, and I wanted to um, take advantage of that opportunity. And some opportunities that were given were just not there. They they do it, want to do it, but they really don't come through with it. And then in high school, my high school coach gave me an opportunity. He said, I want you to play basketball. Mm-hmm. I will start you. I don't even know if you can play, but I will start you because <laughs> I believe in you. I, you're, you're, six, you're six nine, and it's like... Okay, that's a chance. That's an opportunity. So with the opportunity, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do everything I can, I can do to get better so I can help this team. And so I just took that and I carried that along. Now when I look back, I was blessed to come through high school, go to college, go pro, play longest, have the longest tenure in NBA history. Now, who am I to look back and say, well, you guys, whoever's coming behind me, you go do it yourself. No, I would never do that. So my brother and I did brother and I came up with a, an idea to give back through the foster care system. So all these foster care kids who are displaced, 
um, bouncing from home to home, no stability, no one gives them an opportunity, no one gives them a chance because once they get 14, 15, who wants to get adopted? Yeah. They don't, nobody wants to adopt them. This, no, the, clay, the clay is too difficult. I mean, the clay is too hard and so it's difficult that they, everybody just pushes them to the, cast them away. We said, no, we're going to go take them from the age of, say, eight or nine until the age out at 21. So the age is like wide open. And so we bring them in. We built a 160-acre campus for all these kids. And we want to impact their lives through, through um, technology. We want to use, um, we want to just impact them in any way we can. In basketball and sports, that's like third or fourth down the line, even though that's the glue to everything. But we don't want people to think this is like a, a basketball camp. So things like free enterprise, it's, it's, it's yeah. tons of things, great things for kids to get into. Well, that's great. I mean, I love that you're giving back to the mm -hmm. community. And again, obviously, somebody impacted your life and, yeah, and you the just, pay it forward type of mentality. You have to. You have yeah. to. That's the only way we're going to change the mindset of our youth. That's because right. Because if you don't, you're going to see yourself in front of um, the judge, from the judge to the jail, from jail to, you know. It's just a vicious to, cycle. Yeah, it's a, it's a very vicious cycle. It really is. Now, what about any words of wisdom or phrases, mottos, quotes that mm -hmm. has meant a lot to you in your life or just life advice that has meant a lot that you would like to share? Well, you, you always follow your dreams is always been one of my top you know, things in my mind is you always follow your dream. And number one thing is trust in God. If you don't trust in that and trust in him, then it becomes what I think a, a serious struggle because it's life can throw you so many different curveballs, and you need that foundation. And only God provides that solid foundation, that rock that you need to stand upon at when you, when you're faced with any type of adversity, anything, that's the foundation. That's where all mine stems from. It stems mm -hmm. from that and it goes out from there. Without this, it's nothing. It's just, it might as well just be some, some, some dust or sand. And, um, and stay confident in, in, in a humble way. And when you're, when, you're, when you're humble and you're kind and you treat people right, I truly believe that God gives you favor. And when he gives you favor, and he stored and gives you he, your everything you touch is it's you're, it's blessed and it and it and it and it happens for you. It may not happen when you think it needs to happen. It's going to happen in its time. And when it happens in its time, then you look back and say, "Wow, God did pour this on me like this." And, and, it, and it's and it's in His time. So uh, I just told my daughter this morning. I said, "Don't ever become anxious. It's going to happen when God wants it to happen." Don't become anxious for anything. Just, just be cool. Yeah. And that's tough, especially in today's society mm -hmm. when it's the microwave generation mentality yes, that it is. I like want that. something instant. That's right. right? That's what, don't mind me use that sometimes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll let you steal that because I stole it from somebody else. Right. It's, it's a good one, man. It's a good one. Uh, um, and that's, that's, the, that's the mindset, unfortunately. And what about, you know, obviously you were able to utilize the skills that God gave you in a positive way, playing sports, mm -hmm. NBA career, you know, 22 years, all of that. But have you ever thought about what your life would be like if you wouldn't have played sports and just the life lessons that you're utilizing today in your business from playing sports? You know, I'm not sure what it would have been. It would have been something that would have been 
good, that's for sure. But what that is, I don't know because once I made that commitment to basketball, I committed. That was it. And then in 19, uh, I think it was 1987, um, Doc Rivers um, said something that was really stuck with me as well. He said that, and you know, Doc was our leader on the team, and he was like, you know, um, you know, guys, when we're going to these um, corporate events, team events, team functions, tux and tinny events, whatever we're doing, you might want to not be so anxious to rush out to go to the club that next night or after the game. Just stick around, man, and start, you know, talking to some of these corporate people that put this event on, who's part of our ticket holders, because today we may not, you know, need them as far as working or doing like that because we're obviously playing basketball. But when the career ends, you want to have those relationships. You want to have those relationships. You want to nurture those relationships. And when you have some spare time, you might want to just reach out and say, you know, happy birthday or uh, thanks for coming to the game or whatever, whatever it is. Because when it's all said and done, they're going to still be doing what they're doing. This game go in. It can end the next game for us because you can tear your knee up and it's, and it's a wrap. But those relationships become lifetime. Some of them can become lifetime relationships. So from that, from that moment, I took heed to that. And I pride myself in having over close to 200,000 business cards. Wow. I got so many business cards, man. <laughs> You saw how people say they can build a, a house with cards? Yes. I can build a building with mine. I, I have can so imagine. many cards. And that go all the way back to the 80s, man. And I, we got to laugh. I know some of them gone, and but, but I got a lot of business cards, man, and, and I got tremendous. But that was a point of emphasis yeah, for you to it was. It was. connecting with people and building these relationships. Very important. Yeah. And I got some... Tremendous relationships. Out of all those cards, I think I get if it, if it's say if it's a hundred thousand, probably ten thousand of those cards are just those people that is like amazing. Have been pillars in my career of what I've done here. Probably a lot have touched in various ways yes. NBA career. Yes. And Willis and Walker. Yes. So you yes. you pay heed to those people mm-hmm. who have helped. Mm-hmm. Well. You have helped me tremendously just spending the time with me no with my crazy podcasting journey. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. And it's yeah. been an honor Thank you. Uh, spending time with you, Kevin. You got it. Appreciate it. So how do you have longevity in anything that you're doing? Well, you should have been able to understand what that is after hearing Kevin's story, and that's determination. He was determined to silence all of the doubters, and he's done just that. And his career isn't just identified with this word longevity. It's actually more identified with something that we learned in episode 16 from our guest, Ryan Hawk, which is the concept for his podcast, The Learning Leader Show, diving into and examining what makes certain people have success for a long period of time. And Kevin's longevity on and off the court is 100% defined by sustained excellence. Now that finishes episode 53. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. 
Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.